Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figilele Nwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Nigeria's Tijani Mohamed Bande elected president of the UN General Assembly and experts say air pollution is the greatest environmental threat to health. In economics news, Standard Bank to close over 100 branches in South Africa and in sports news, top South African bowler ruled out of the remainder of the World Cup. But first up the news with Anne Musa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Doctors in Sudan say 60 people are now known to have died in the last few days in an attempt by security forces to crush pro-democracy protests. Forces of the transitional military government opened fire on unarmed demonstrators on Monday while trying to clear a protest camp. Members of a feared paramilitary group are since reported to have been roaming the streets beating and shooting at civilians. The BBC's Steve Jackson reports. Sudan's opposition was thought to be close to a deal with the transitional military authorities on establishing a civilian government. Now the situation has taken a dangerous turn. The protesters, driven from their main camp by the violent clearance operation, have retreated to residential areas and are building roadblocks with stones and burning tyres. Government militias are patrolling the streets in camouflage trucks, trying to clear the barricades, firing their weapons and attacking demonstrators with batons. Analysts have warned that the violence could rapidly escalate. Supporters of Malawi's opposition leader Lazarus Chakwera has, have marched through the streets of the capital Ilongwe, protesting against alleged irregularities in last month's presidential elections. Protesters chanted slogans claiming President Peter Mutarika had stolen the election. The demonstration comes after two opposition leaders filed separate cases in court challenging Mutarika's win. Mutarika win, uh, won a second term in office after garnering 38.5% of the votes, narrowly defeating his closest challenger, Chakwera, by just 3%. 
U.S. President Donald Trump has denounced protests in Britain against his state visit. He described the protests as very small and fake news. Trump was speaking after a meeting with Britain's outgoing Prime Minister Theresa May. He called the U.S.-U.K. alliance the greatest the world has ever known. Trump also spoke of the migration to the United States from Mexico and says he will impose a tariff on all Mexican goods if the southern neighbor does not half the number of of immigrants crossing into the U.S. Mexico shouldn't allow millions of people to try and enter our country, and they could stop it very quickly. And I think they will. And if they won't, we're going to put tariffs on. And every month, those tariffs go from 5% to 10% to 15% to 20% and then to 25%. DRC officials have recorded more than 2,000 cases of Ebola, two-thirds of which had been fatal since the disease broke out. In the country's east 10 months ago, efforts to tackle the crisis have been hampered by both militant attacks on treatment centers in which some staff have been killed and by the hostility of some local people to the medical teams. The BBC's Gaius Kouane reports. The Ministry of Health has counted 2008 confirmed and probable cases of Ebola in Eastern DRC since August. That part of the country has known decades of conflict. Mistrust of health workers and insecurity remain the two main challenges facing the Ebola response teams. Health workers are struggling to identify and follow up on suspected cases and have been targeted for attack themselves. Oxfam says its teams are still meeting people on a daily basis who don't believe Ebola is real. This is the 10th and deadliest Ebola outbreak to hit DRC. The virus has claimed more than 1,300 victims in the past 10 months. And finally, Australian police have raided the offices of the country's national broadcaster over allegations that it had published classified material. This is the second raid on a media outlet in just two days, prompting complaints that the, the searches hindered media freedom. The Australian Broadcasting Company's managing director, David Anderson, said it was a serious development raising legitimate concerns over press freedom and proper public scrutiny of national security and defence matters. On Tuesday, police raided the home of an editor of the News Corp media company related to a 2018 newspaper report that alleged that Australia's intelligence agencies wanted to carry out surveillance by accessing people's emails, bank accounts and text messages. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Channel Africa. Culture and Joy of Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Diana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. 
Africa's unopposed candidate, Professor Tijani Mohamed Bande of Nigeria, has been elected to lead the United Nations General Assembly for its upcoming 74th session. Currently, Nigeria's ambassador to the UN, Mohamed Bande, will succeed Ecuador's Maria Fernande Espinosa Garces, who completes her one-year term in September. In his first speech since his election through acclamation in the Assembly, the president-elect vowed that uh, openness, inclusivity and transparency would guide all the activities of his office. Show and Bryce Peace reports. I therefore declare His Excellency Tijani Mohamed Bande of Nigeria elected by acclamation as President of the General Assembly at its 74th session. He is the Africa Group's candidate as the body follows the principle of geographical rotation for the office of the President. Listen to Professor Tijani Mohamed Bande, President-elect of the 74th session. I'm honored by the trust you have placed in me through my election by acclamation to the position of President of the General Assembly for its 74th session. I'm grateful to the Federal Republic of Nigeria for nominating me for this esteemed position, to the African Group for endorsing my candidacy, and to all member states for extending their priceless support. I congratulate President Espinosa for her tireless efforts to guide our work through the current session and thank the Secretary-General for his leadership at this critical moment for the United Nations. He called for the General Assembly to play a role in bridging gaps by promoting collective action to address all international issues that deserve attention, among them the Sustainable Development Goals, climate change and reducing conflicts globally, among others. We'll commemorate the 77th-75th anniversary of the creation of the United Nations next year. This presents a unique opportunity for us to reduce the trust deficit between nations as we, are, as we all share the same aspirations and we have no choice but to work together. If we will achieve the visions of our founding fathers, we must ensure that indifference and racism do not creep into our organization. The UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres wished him well in his preparations to assume his new role at the organization. From your ears as permanent representative of Nigeria, you know the United Nations well. And from your wide-ranging academic pursuits, you are an expert in political science and public administration. And as a Nigerian as a, and an African, you have invaluable insights into the continent's challenges, such as the Sahel, and the Lake Chad Basin, and more broadly, into the challenges our world faces across the three pillars of our work, peace, sustainable development, and human rights. We wish you well in your preparations for this role in the months ahead. Mohamed Bande will assume his role in September at the conclusion of the 73rd session and ahead of the annual high-level meetings attended by heads of state and government. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. The United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, has expressed concern over the large number of out-of-school children in some states in Nigeria. To tackle the problem, the Universal Basic Education Commission is set to adopt open schooling program as a strategy to reduce the number of out-of-school children in Nigeria. Collins Atohengbe reports. Undoubtedly, everything about Nigeria, you will agree, is big. From landmass to the number of political parties and economy, 
all point to this assertion. But so also is the issue of the number of out-of-school children said to be one of the highest, if not the very highest in the world. With an estimated 13.2 million, Nigeria is not finding it funny that it has such unenviable record of out-of-school children, which though is not deliberate but is occasioned by some socio-political situations which it has been grappling with. Experts say there are issues that should be tackled to have the number brought down to the barest minimum for things to look up again in the education sector. Foluke Ademokun is an expert in development issues. First, I will say we are not even sure what the number is. We have the 10.5, we have 13.2, we have 8 million, we have 7 million because we have issue with data collection in this country. But then looking at the north, you have to look at the at social norms. We talked about Almajiri, you know, uh, there are people who believe uh, children should go to Quranic you know, school and that's making them out of school because they don't have access to literacy and numeracy. Um, we need to look at that. We need to look at the issue of poverty. We need to look at the issue of violence, economic barriers. So there are... It might read, you know, multiple you know, issues that um, are affecting you know, the access of children to school, particularly in the north. All over the years since independence, Nigeria has maintained a very enviable budgetary allocation for education at all levels of governance. It would appear that despite these provisions, reaching the set goals of education has not been satisfactory. If the ideal thing is done in line with the policy framework, the possibility is that there will be a gradual drop in the figure of school dropouts but Hamid Boboi, the Executive Secretary, Universal Basic Education, says if that is not done, then the subsequent issues that we follow is better imagined than experienced. Let's refocus our attention on ensuring that education, on going to school. Otherwise, again, we will have a big crisis in our hands. From the challenges facing education, particularly in the North, which has the highest number of out-of-school children, is there any chance of a reversal? Foluke Ademokun says there is a way if available helpline is exploited. She says some of the local systems should be co-opted. Yes, we can do something. Because if you look at um, the Middle East countries, I mean, that are uh, majorly, you know, Islamic countries, you look at their literacy level, very high, 80%, you know, 90-something percent overall for countries like Iran that are even, you know, at war. So Nigeria, we can do something. Uh, I will, maybe the government to look at the even look at the issue of the Quranic school. That's something that you know, we could look at. We could also look at the issue of um, um, adult literacy. We need to look at the issue of infrastructure. We need to look at the issue of safety, security. These are areas that government need to concentrate its effort on so that more children can have access and they can uh, be retained in school. You know, that is what we help you know, to, to keep children in school. We must take a comprehensive you know, uh, effort. But in the understanding of Emmanuel Agbali, Commissioner for Education in Edo State, there's really no reason to have this high figure of out-of-school children in Nigeria because basic education from primary to high school is free and compulsory by government policy. There's really no reason why we should have out-of-school children in Nigeria, particularly at the basic education level, because basic education is free and compulsory in public schools. In 2015, the figures were about 10.5 million children in Nigeria. That figure has risen to about 13.2 million in 2018. And it appears the figure is um, rising by the day. Um, so all hands must be on deck to find a solution to it. Looking at the demerits of the situation, Dr. Ademokun says government must intensify efforts to integrate the existing local structure to keep children in school 
as one way to reducing the number of those who could end up in the hands of terrorists and insurgents as foot soldiers. If you don't have a strategy you know, after addressing something, there could be uh, exploitation. People take advantage you know, of the process. There are people who have taken you know, undue advantage this time of the Almagiri system as a way you know, to um, uh, increase uh, the situation of violence, you know, to uh, use these children as food, you know, soldiers. And that's something that we have to stop. How can government you know, work with the, the Quranic you know, uh, masters to let them know that in this age and time, children need to know how to read and to write, to have uh, basic skills to communicate, not just with the children in their neighborhood, but with children outside of their neighborhood. The Almagiri system is not working, obviously, because it's making the children more prone to violence. You, you see, sometimes children, um, they have access you know, to false information about society. And since you don't have the right information, it affects the way you, know, you see society you know, itself. The problem of out-of-school children did not begin with the Buhari administration, but between 2015 and 2018, the population of out-of-school children has increased from 10.5 to 13.2 million, with 69% of that figure in the north. Bauchi State has the highest number of 1.1 million out-of-school children. Some parents prefer that their words went to Quranic schools. In all, the insecurity which led to the destruction of learning facilities and fear of abduction have played a significant role in the number of out-of-school children. Maybe this will form part of the major focus of the Nigerian government in the next four years. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atohim before Channel Africa News. A world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. South Africa's ruling African National Congress has vowed to reduce the stubbornly high unemployment rate from 27% to 14% within the next five years. This came out at the end of the governing party's National Executive Committee meeting, which ended in Pretoria yesterday. The two-day gathering was attended by the top brass of the ANC, members of the alliance partners, and those deployed in government. Ndebo Mukobo reports. Following its over 57% win during the May polls, the ANC now says it wants to translate its contract with the people of South Africa into action. And one of its key election promises was to create the much-needed jobs. Despite the Reserve Bank having projected the country's growth to less than 1% for this year, the governing ANC has an ambitious goal for the sixth administration of significantly reducing unemployment to 14% in the next five years, as Party Secretary-General Ace Mahashule explains. Lehotla agreed that unemployment is now going to be a national emergency. Lehotla agreed to reduce unemployment from 27% to 14% in the next five years. And the ANC plans to achieve massive job creation on the back of the Industrial Strategy Job Summit initiatives Operation Pakisa, private-public growth initiatives, those are the areas we are going to try and deal with this challenge of unemployment. But Associate Political Lecturer at Vets University, Togazani Chilenga Putao, says the ANC plan is not just ambitious, 
but unachievable. I think that it will be extremely difficult to do that over the next five years. And I think people have been asking, what is the concrete plan? Tell us how this is going to take place. Will it be through industrialization? If there's more investment, how will that investment be plugged into the economy? And without that concrete plan, I think that it's not only ambitious, but as I said earlier, it is policy making that keeps falling down because there is a repetition of things that should be done, but we're not seeing the action of where or how it's going to be done. The ANC Secretary General also said they will review the Public Finance Management Act to stimulate growth. The Hotla called for a review and amendment of the legislative framework, such as Public Finance Management Act and the MFMMA and the Public Service Act, because sometimes these acts are the ones which are stifling development because you can't do things faster, quicker. You can't do certain things to empower cooperatives. You have to follow long processes. This would ensure that they enable and facilitate rather than impede developmental objectives an effective and efficient implementation of programs while ensuring accountability, transparency, combating fraud and corruption. And although the issue of the nationalization of the Reserve Bank has been extensively dealt with by both ANC and government, Mahashule said they have now resolved to expand the central bank's mandate to include growth and job creation. It was agreed by all that all employees will ensure that the resolutions of the 54th National Conference will be fully implemented in this regard. The National Executive Committee, Lukhotla, agreed to expand also the mandate of the South African Reserve Bank just beyond price stability to include growth and employment. On the march to the Tule House by members of the ANC Youth League, Mahashule said they have appointed a task team to deal with all the problems facing the league. He said a meeting is planned between the task team and the concerned league members on Wednesday. I am Tebumokobo in Johannesburg. South Africa's Arts, Sports and Culture Minister Natim Tetra says today, yesterday's, today's youth should emulate yesteryear's youth leaders of the likes of Peter Mugaba and should always remember where they come from. Mtetra was speaking at the launch of Youth Month 2019 at the Hector Peterson Memorial in Soweto, south of Johannesburg. Mtetwa said there should be a paradigm shift and that the youth should be innovators and that they need to use their talents to develop themselves. We need a Solomon of today, a Solomon Mahlangu of today who is going to ensure that that blood of Solomon nourishes the tree of freedom by ensuring that you grab the opportunities which are there. There are opportunities which need to be exploited and taken advantage of from government and in all the sectors of government. Speaking at the same venue, Maitengwana Mashabani, the Minister of Women, Youth and Persons with Disabilities, expressed concern about youth unemployment. We cannot afford to have young male and female unemployed certificated as we have today. But we have a responsibility that as we champion that which is happening or the generation, your generation is feeling now. The future generations should not go through what we have gone through.
Nkwane Mashabane said the NYDA has championed the well-being and the future of the youth and needs to be supported. Meanwhile, MEC for Sports, Arts and Culture Mbali Shope called on officials to assist young people who find themselves in the streets from becoming drug addicts or getting involved in crime. MEC Mbali Shope. Our officials must go on the ground and find these young people where they are. Those when you see them on the robots of the street and they perform their various performances as you are waiting for the robot to open. These are the young people we want to find. And working together with the social development, we have said we must be able to ensure we remove them from the streets and put them into productive activities. And the department as a government must be able to support their endeavors. And the National Youth Development Agency Executive Chairperson, Sfisom Tsweni, says South Africa needs one single education system that does not put black people outside the mainstream. He says there should be a universal application for students when they apply for university entrance. Sfisom Tsweni. When you have passed metric and you want to study chemical engineering, you must fill in one form. Attached to that form, you fill in the NSFAS form. It must be processed centrally. Where there is space in Free State, you must be sent to Free State. Where there is space in Limpopo, you must be sent to Limpopo. Where there is space in Eastern Cape, you must go to Eastern Cape. We must not be told that you have applied in VETS. You wait until January, then VETS tells you that there's no space. By that time, they tell you that all other universities don't have space. We want a single education system. This year's June 16 celebrations, which will be addressed by President Cyril Ramaphosa, will be held in Limpopo. Lehana Tsuteti, SABC News, Johannesburg. Statistics South Africa has reported that the country's economy contracted by 3.2% in the first quarter of 2019 from 1.4% in the last quarter of 2018. Stats SA says the latest contraction in economic growth is the biggest quarterly fall in economic activity since the first quarter of 2009 when the economy fell under the pressure of the global economic crisis. Naleding Noble reports. Stats SA further revealed that the manufacturing, mining and agriculture sector were the biggest contributors to the fall. It reported that the construction, mining and trade sectors are now officially in recession. Meanwhile, analysts have expressed their shock at the latest economic growth figures. Economist at NKC African Economics, Elise Kruger, says the decline in growth reflects the impact of the load shedding incidents experienced earlier this year. Seven out of the ten sectors in the economy contracted in quarter one, indicating the severe impact of load shedding uh, that load shedding has had on the economy. Overall growth numbers for 2019 will be revised even lower, thinking that it will slice off in the order of 0.4 to 0.5% of uh, GDP growth figures. This is quite dismal. It is as bad or the worst since we've seen in the global financial crisis. Kruger echoed the sentiment of the International Monetary Fund during their latest visit to South Africa, where they urged the government to urgently implement reforms to lift business confidence. Kruger says policy certainty must top government's list of priorities. Then, and now that we've got uh, President Ramaphosa as the new president and his new cabinet, you now all eyes will be on him and his cabinet to see if they're going to implement some of the good plans are already on the table because this economy is in dire need now for growth. And that growth can only come from policy, policy certainty, but also you know, from uh, certainty of energy supply. So therefore, uh, ESCOM is a very important factor in this whole picture. 
An economist at Nedbank, Nikki Weimar, says the global economic slowdown and the trade war between the U.S. and China has also had an adverse impact on the local economy also reflects um, the vulnerable state of the world economy. We saw a noticeable loss of momentum in the first quarter. Um, and most of our uh, major trading partners, um, and particularly in China, where you know, both exports and imports um, declined quite uh, sharply um, you know, due to the escalating trade war between the U.S. and China. The rand weakened by around 1% against a basket of major currencies following the worse-than-expected economic growth data for the first quarter. I'm Naledi Ngobo in Johannesburg. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa 1, on Twitter, at Channel Africa 1, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Our headlines up next with Nosile Zuma. Thank you, Lolo. Good morning. Supporters of Malawian opposition leader Lazarus Chagwera marched through the streets of the capital, Lelongwe, protesting against alleged irregularities in last month's presidential elections. Doctors in Sudan say 60 people are now known to have died in the last few days in an attempt by security forces to crush pro-democracy protest. An Australian cardinal, George Pell, has appeared in court to appeal against his conviction for sexually abusing two young boys in the 1990s. And Musa will give you a full bulletin at nine. When it comes to tackling air pollution, the greatest environmental threat to health causing 7 million premature deaths per year, everyone can do something to help prevent it. That's the view of China-based T. Chung, 
of the UN Environment Programme's Climate and Clean Air Coalition as we mark World Environment Day today. In an interview with Li Zhang of UN News, he outlined how people can switch from being part of a problem to part of a solution and how the Chinese capital Beijing had successfully cut pollution in recent years. So I think the messages to send to the world is that air pollution is a serious threat to your health and the health of uh, your family. Um, that we want people around the world to raise awareness by taking this mass challenge about the fact that uh, that, that air pollution impacts them and their lives. But also, I think that the key part of the air pollution story is that everyone can do something to help prevent air pollution, whether it's from an individual level, whether it's at a local community level, the city level, and of course, national government levels. There are things that can happen. One of the things that we're trying to do this World Environment Day is to ensure that people understand what the solutions are and how they can play their part and how they can work with their governments to play a part, to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And this goes down to everyday things, you know, like uh, better ways of driving your car or um, if you have the, the possibility of switching to lower emissions vehicles better, or if you can take public transportation or even um, you know, human-powered transportation like cycling, uh, that all plays its part. So one of the things we're really trying to do this air pollution is for people to take the mass challenge to show that they are interested in doing something about the problem and then to take steps in their daily lives to do something about the problem. Okay, a UNEP report, Measuring Progress, published recently, says that despite of the significant actions taken towards several SDG targets, there are still gaps in terms of reducing air pollution mortality and infrastructure-related emissions. What are the reasons behind, and what do you think would be the steps forward to close the gaps in these regards? Well, air pollution is a notoriously difficult problem to deal with. Um, we've come a long way in this world so far, uh, steps to do it. It's not too long ago that, you know, places like London were under, like, serious smog alerts that impacted health and killed lots and lots of people. But where we're at at this point is we're looking at air pollution. There's a greater understanding of the impact air pollution has on human health and development. Um, and so what we're really looking at is to learn the lessons from some of the cities that have gone forward. And if you look at, you know, the efforts that places like Los Angeles have done, places like Beijing, places like Mexico City, they haven't solved the air pollution problems 100%, but they're taking steps in the right direction. Um, the other important element of this, too, is when we look at air pollution and look at climate change at the same time, a lot of the measures that you take to solve one problem helps solve the other. So what we're also asking countries to do is to take an integrated approach on solving air pollution and climate at the same time. That's because many, many sources of air pollution are also sources of greenhouse gases and vice versa. So in a sense, as governments move towards decarbonizing as part of their global uh, obligations through things like the UNFCCC's COP process or the Paris Agreement, they can get benefits for people now when it comes to impacts on health from air pollution. And the same goes the other way. As people look at uh, cleaning up air or improving the air quality for their citizens, they can also get climate benefits that help 
put the world on a safer path to um, global warming, keeping warming down to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So a lot of the steps that countries, industry, cities, and people need to take in terms of protecting our climate and also in terms of protecting us from air pollution will have cross-benefits for either issue. The State of Global Air 2019 report says that air pollution has significantly reduced life expectancy. So what is UNEP's next step to mitigate the deadly impacts of air pollution? The UN Environment is working uh, through, its, through its various programs and through its regional offices to help countries understand what the solutions are. So, for example, the UN Environment, together with the Climate and Clean Air Coalition and the Asia-Pacific Clean Air Partnership, put out a report last November on 25 solutions that governments can take to improve air quality. Now, if taken, these solutions can have 1 billion people in Asia alone living within WHO air quality guidelines. They will also reduce um, the impact to climate by a third of a degree by 2050. Now, it doesn't sound like much a third of a degree, but if you look at where we need to get to in terms of climate change, we need to get to 1.5 degrees. Everything counts. So now let's talk about Beijing, China. Um, a recent report that reviews Beijing's 20 years air pollution control concludes that it has successfully reduced air pollution during the past two decades. And ex- experience could be a lesson for other countries in the world. So what would be the lessons in your view and what else China needs to do to tackle air pollution? Well, Beijing really took the issue very, very seriously. And it was, it's been part of their... Uh, plan for the last 20 years, and then in the last five, particularly between 2013 and 2017, they ramped up their efforts on reducing air pollution, and they have seen significant results. I think what we learned from Beijing is that you really do need a systematic approach based on good science, and they focus on six important areas in developing its air quality management. They had a good scientific assessment of the situation. They worked on regulations and standards, optimized regulations and standards. They aligned the economic policy with government investment, and they did spend a lot of money working on solving this issue. They also improved their monitoring capacities throughout the city. Now, if you look at Beijing, they have a very wide network now of air quality monitoring, both at the uh, both using very, very high-end air quality mo- monitors to get very, very specific readings on what the air quality is like, and also lower-cost sensors in order to be able to uh, monitor and enforce air quality. They have used transparent information sharing with public participation, and they've also used emission reduction technology and measures. So they've looked at what technologies can be put in place to rapidly lower air pollution. They've worked with national government to uh, put in place uh, standards like China 6 vehicle emission standards, and they've increased and have been very vigilant with enforcement. That's uh, Tiung Chung of the UN Environment Program's Climate and Clean Air Coalition speaking to Li Zhang of UN News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorza. Africa, amuka na unai.
The House of Traditional Leaders in South Africa's Limpopo province says it's anticipating an incident-free initiation season this year. More than 300 traditional surgeons have acquired licenses to commence with initiation schools from Friday this week. This follows a successful 2018 season where no deaths were reported in all the districts in the province. Amuge Longobeni has more. Preparations for the annual initiation season are complete and boys from 12 years of age will start their journey to manhood. Last season, more than 50,000 initiates underwent the process in the province and no deaths were reported. Over 300 applications for initiation schools have been approved. 61 applications in Mubani and Sikukune districts have however been rejected. Traditional Affairs MEC Biscop Magamu has encouraged parents to ensure that they take their children to licensed schools. In an effort to prevent unnecessary loss of life, we request parents to send their children to the initiation schools that are approved. We therefore call upon parents to authenticate the legitimacy of initiation schools they intend to send their children with their respective traditional authorities. There will be zero tolerance to people who want to take chances by running initiation schools without permits. Makamu says those operating illegal initiation schools will be prosecuted. As a department, we are going to ensure that wherever we should be able to provide evidence because we'll be following those that will just even opening illegal schools, we will be able to go there and I think we'll provide a strong case against each and every transgressor to make sure that there should be successful prosecution. But you should be able to know that the best thing we think we should be able to do which the MEC also spoke about, is to prevent them. Chairperson of the Provincial House of Leaders, Marlisela Dikhale, says schools are barred from taking children under the age of 12, and those who do so will face the full might of the law. On the age limit, we are taking 12 years and above. We have an experience that uh, some people at the age of 66 came to the initiation schools. Some at the age of 50 came for uh, initiation schools. But uh, we don't take below, below 12. Some from the Vember district mainly were saying, let's take from the age of seven. And that was rejected by traditional leaders of the, this province. Meanwhile, Health MEC Pupira Matuba says medical staff, including nurses, will provide assistance to some of the schools. Besides uh, the screening, we also make sure that our EMS is all, all, always ready for any case or any, any uh, complication. We, we have changed the system where we, since last year, we've been utilizing a number of our male nurses that have been to the, when it, you talk about the male circumcision, I'm just a bit concerned because with the female, we have not started to take the female nurses to the, to the school. The House of Traditional Leaders and the Department of Traditional Affairs say several cases opened against those who ran illegal schools in 2018 resulted in illegal surgeons being fined. Other cases in Sukukone district are still being investigated. That report by Amuge Longobeni in Pulukwane. Nepal has promised to revamp its rules after 11 deaths on Mount Everest. It issued a record number of climbing permits this year, and veterans blame the carnage on the world's tallest mountain on unruly pileups by rookie mountaineers who seemed only too eager to kill themselves to reach the top. Rana Sen has more. This spring, South Africa's Sarai Kumalo made history. 
she became the first black African woman to conquer Everest. And compatriot Kelly Letcher told reporters of the circus on the world's highest mountain. I can tell you that at about 4,000 meters, it's difficult to sleep. You don't rest. You lose your appetite. Your oxygen levels low. So, like, even going higher is more difficult. But those guys spend months training and stuff. And then you have a weather window, and then you still have another three days to the top. But I think it's just one of those things where there's so many people who want to do it and who train. And I think maybe, like, there should be a limit on how many people go up each day because you only have a limited supply of oxygen, and if you're tired, you're tired. You might make it to the top, but you still have to make it down. And Kashmir's Riza Ali spoke of the death race by climbers wearing huge downers jackets, scrambling to summit Everest. Lots of people died this year, everyone knows, and it's been a carnage. And I should say it has become a death race there because there was massive traffic jam and people are pushing themselves who are not even capable of doing it. They do it. They try to summit. It has cited bodies of eight other climbers, including four Britons, two Americans and an Australian. The team was lost elsewhere in the Himalayas since May 27th. This is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoku. Good morning. Standard Bank South Africa is expected to close more than 100 branches and retrench hundreds of staff members as part of its efforts to digitize its retail and business bank. Information sourced from South African publications is that the bank announced that it planned to close more than 91 branches with the closures impacting approximately 1,200 jobs. Standard Bank says that the majority of branches will be closed before the end of this month and that it has worked hard to minimize the impact of this reorganization on its staff members. South Africa's Finance Minister Tito Mboweni and head of the ruling ANC's Economic Transformation Subcommittee, Enoch Kotongwana, have contradicted the ANC's stance on the expansion of the South African Reserve Bank's mandate. On a Tuesday, ANC Secretary-General Ace Mahashule told the media that the ANC has resolved that the Reserve Bank's mandate should be expanded. However, Kodongwana said in a statement that was tweeted by Mboweni that the government determines the mandate of the Reserve Bank, implying that the ANC has little say in that regard. The ANC also says it wants to almost halve unemployment in the next five years. Stats essay on a Tuesday revealed that GDP contracted by 3.2%, causing the rand to weaken by around 1% against a basket of major currencies. ANC spokesperson Bulemabe. Those are discussions that are ongoing in the organization as part of exploring the different options. It is in our interest that the central bank is stable. It continues to discharge its own mandate and makes a positive contribution on the kind of growth that we want to see in the country. At the right time, when we had clearly formulated a view on how all of these things are going to be approached, we'll be able to communicate and convey our message. We are quite confident now and happy with the work that the central bank is doing to try and make sure that we achieve the levels of stability required, but we also boost investor confidence as well.
The management of Lesotho's telecommunications company, Econet, has refuted allegations that the company is experiencing serious financial challenges that may lead to its collapse. The management has labelled the claims as fabricated rumours. Finance Minister Moyizi Majoro has recently told the Public Accounts Committee that Econet owes the government. Majoro cited Econet, along with Lesotho Flower Meals and Avani Hotels, for failing to consistently pay dividends to government as its shareholder. Angola's national oil uh, production company, Sonangol, and United Shine have signed a partnership agreement to build a high-conversion crude oil refinery in Kabinda province, an Angolan enclave coinciding between the Republic of Congo and the DRC. According to Sonangol, the refinery will in the long term produce gasoline, diesel, oil and kerosene in particular, and will have a processing capacity of 60,000 barrels of oil per day. The initiative is part of Angola's desire to transform its hydrocarbon resources on the spot and to promote the diversification of an economy that is too dependent on oil. The Nigeria Export Import Bank is targeting 1.2 billion US dollars in annual exports through its C-Link project. The bank recently signed a C-Link project memorandum of understanding with Transimax SA Cameroon through a special purpose vehicle in the capital Abuja. The MOU will promote waterway operations for hinterland, transit and coastal trade, especially for bulk cargo. The US dollar is trading at 354.32 Nigerian Nara, 1062 Botswana Pula, 100 Kenyan shilling 21 cents, and 1298 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 387 Brazilian roll, 6521 Russian ruble, 6915 Indian rupee, 692 Chinese yuan, and 1457 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,326. Platinum, $818 pounds. So the price of Brent crude oil is at $61.66 a barrel. Channel Africa. Our sports updates up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we begin with football news. South African national football team, Bafana Bafana coach Stuart Baxter says... Keegan Dolly's injury is a big blow for the national team going into the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations AFCON in Egypt. Dolly suffered a groin injury in the Kosafa Cup tournament in Devon ahead of Botswana match last Sunday. Dolly has been struggling with injuries this season. It is a blow because it's a blow for, for the squad and it's a blow for Keegan and it's a blow for South African football because, you know, Keegan's one of the young ones, promising ones that... that needs to be fit and play a lot of games and and get that international experience that that you need so on a on a squad level you know keegan uh, keegan's an asset and and we we needed we needed that sort of asset but it's it is what it is you know you've got to get on with it it's not it's not not the end of the world baxter 
has not decided on the player that will replace winger Dolly, who is based in France. He hinted that the replacement could come from the provisional team or the Kosafa team players currently in Durban. The final team will be announced before they depart to Dubai on the 10th of this month. We've not made any decisions yet now. I mean, we'll, uh, we'll see what happens in, uh, in Durban and I'll speak to David and if we think there's players that will benefit hugely, then uh, we'll consider that one. No, we'll certainly, no we'll, the replacement will probably come from here and, uh, and, if, we, and if, we, if we need to, we'll top it up from Durban. Still with football news, fans of both Esperance, Sportive and Weed at Casablanca stage a protest outside a meeting of African football administrators in Paris after their African Champions League final was abandoned. The match was called off on Friday with half an hour to go and Esperance declared winners after Weed had walked off in the protest at a refereeing decision. Ismail El Haddad's header was disallowed, with the referee declining to use VAR for a second opinion. If the goal had been given, Widad would have drawn level on aggregate at 2 all. KEF are due to make a ruling and they held a meeting at Paris Hotel at which fans of both clubs made their feelings known during a noisy protest outside. And in athletic news, the World Medical Association, WMA, has welcomed the decision by a Swiss court to temporarily suspend the IWAF testosterone levels. Dr. Leonard Edelman, president of the WMA, says they are delighted that Swiss court has listened to the objections to the IAAF's rules, which would have forced Casta Semenya to take testosterone-reducing medication to compete in athletics events. It now means that the IAAF can give further consideration to this issue. The WMA continues to have strong reservations about the ethical validity of these regulations, and our, their advice to physicians remains that they should take no part in implementing them. In uh, cricket news, the South African national cricket team, the Proteas, take on world number two India today in a critical encounter with a dressing room looking like a hospital ward with mounting injuries. Proteas captain Favre Duplessis says the injuries have disrupted the side's progress, but they will soldier on. Injuries is absolutely never part of what you want to do when you come to a tournament like this um you know i've said to you guys so many times that our x factor as a team is going to depend on how brilliant our bowling attack is the hard fact is that lungi and dale as two of those players that are not on the field you know we haven't had one game where we've almost had our we haven't had our strongest 11 playing on the field yet um so that is challenging um, but it unfortunately you don't get a a pass for having injuries, you're still going to make sure that your squad is strong enough. You, you try and plan to have backup plans for when you do have one or two injuries. Um, obviously, it's a little bit more than we've hoped, um, and that changes everything for us from a balance point of view. But we still got to get on the park and make sure um, you know, we put in performances um, to make us as a team part of it and also our country part of it. Roger Ferreira set up a French Open semi-final against defending champion Rafael Nadal by overcoming fellow Swiss Stan Wawrinka in four sets. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Nigeria's Tijani Mohamed Bande, elected president of the UN General Assembly, and experts say air pollution is the greatest environmental threat to health. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica. I'll take us to the top of the hour for the news on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za is Femi Koya with a song titled Babalao. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, mama, for what I said, I read.